Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua, and today's episode will be on Daniel and Daniel's prophecy as it relates to how we interact with and what our relationship is with the state, the system, the government, that kind of thing. How do we uh, deal with that relationship between the Christian and the state, especially? So as a bit of a background for those that may be new, uh, this podcast is all about really the evolution of society and how things have changed, how they have gotten to where they are, where they're going, everything in between. And that has gone on for five seasons. So if you are a new listener as of this season, I would at least recommend you go back and listen to the season before this. I guess that would be season four, where I essentially do an overview of everything that I had covered throughout the entirety of the podcast. That will really get you up to speed, and I think you'll really enjoy that. This season, I am specifically getting into the view of, I guess, the biblical view of the relationship between an individual and the system, so to say, and mainly the individual and the state or the Christian and the state. And so I have uh, talked a little bit about moral issues with statism or government as a whole, politics, all of that. We've dealt with practical issues and gotten into agorism and what do you do about it? What's What are the action steps? And so now I'm getting into this uh, theological perspective of uh, what does does the Bible say about these things? And uh, generally, I guess, obviously, this season is mostly for Christians, or at least those interested, uh, but I'm sure anybody else could get uh, some good things out of this as well. But uh, that is where we are in the podcast. And so today's episode will be focused on the story of Daniel, a little bit about him, and then a little bit about his uh, prophecy. And we are getting towards the end of wrapping up the Old Testament, so to say, and what the Old Testament and some of these Old Testament stories and people have to say about these subjects that we're covering. So let's just go ahead and get started. Daniel is another case of an individual who was taken by force and placed into a position of authority within the state. This is similar to how we covered uh, Joseph a little bit earlier, and there are a few other examples in the Bible. Daniel did not seek this position, nor did he fight against it. He submitted to the authorities in all things that didn't directly contradict his views of God's desires. Daniel refused to eat when it conflicted with his view of God's dietary restrictions. He refused to stop praying or alter his prayer habits. His companions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to bow in worship to anything other than God. So Daniel and his companions, however, didn't refuse the positions on government they were assigned or the duties therein where they were supposed to uh, fulfill those positions. So, as you can see, there there is definitely some uh, disobedience going on here, some civil disobedience, where they did disobey direct orders from their governing authorities, but only when it directly contradicted what they believed God was telling them to do and what God had told them they should do. Other than that, they submitted, even to the point of taking these governmental positions, which, if you've been paying attention this season, uh, that is not something Christians are called to do, at least that we have found up until now. 
Maybe you can argue that there's something later on in the Bible, and hopefully we'll get there. But uh, so far, that has not been established. So, um, one objection that someone may have may be that Daniel got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego leadership roles in the state. Uh, This is true to an extent, since they were already in positions of influence, however, and already a part of the state bureaucracy, this would have simply been an alteration of what they were already doing within the state, not a transition into the state. So it's not that uh, he called them to a life of politics where they were just farmers and uh, they came in because they thought that would be a good place for them to be where they can make a difference. No, they were already there. Daniel just uh, switched their job title within that bureaucracy. So these examples of biblical characters in governmental roles all made it clear that rulers and citizens alike should follow God's commands. And we and they would be judged according to these standards, but none imposed these facts on others through force or coercion. That has not happened in any of these stories. None outside of the rulers of God's chosen chosen nation of Israel used the state to carry out God's will. They used God's wisdom, his blessing, and his revelation to perform their duties well. But, like Joseph, there is never an example of them using their positions to force God's law on anyone else, whether ruler or citizen. That's not what they do. And so when you see how the role of a politician in modern times of any type is to impose rules on other people through coercion or force or both, that just, it doesn't, it's not backed up by scripture. There actually, the contrary is directly addressed in scripture as we have covered before. And so uh, that's kind of the issue here, that even these stories where these individuals are in these positions of authority, they are situations where the people submitted to their governing authorities who put them in a select position, none of them uh, sought it out, none of them went campaigning, none of them really wanted to be in that role, so to say, they were put in that role and they obeyed, they submitted And then even when they were in that role, they still didn't do anything that was outside of God's will, at least as far as uh, they perceived it. And so they did not force anybody or coerce anybody to follow God's ways, because that's not how it works. There's this thing called free will, where all individuals get to choose whether to follow God's ways or not. That is not something that should be imposed on anybody else through force or coercion. So... There could be an objection that I I will have to mention, I didn't mention in Joseph's story, but it uh, makes sense to mention now, um, is that there could be an objection in Joseph's story that he set up a policy of taking grain from the inhabitants of Egypt in violation of their right to ownership of their property and the produce thereof. However, in Egypt at the time, all land was owned by the pharaoh or technically the gods, which either included Pharaoh or were represented by Pharaoh. Citizens themselves were given limited rights of use of the land, but never actually owned it. Whether this is a moral or godly system is a totally separate issue, but Joseph had no influence over that aspect of it. That would have been even over his head. Joseph suggested that the Pharaoh use his resources that he technically owned in a way that would actually benefit all the inhabitants by storing the excess production. 
Otherwise, the likeliest scenario would have been famine without extra stores resulting in the pharaoh still taking the produce of his land from the people, but for his own benefit and those in the state, with the citizenry starving because of it. Regardless or of the results or potential consequences, Joseph was dealing with the property of pharaoh, not the property of the citizenry. Now, again, you could argue that that system is immoral, corrupt, wrong, that uh, Pharaoh had no right to this land, uh, maybe, uh, and I would not argue that point, but that is a totally separate point. The reality was that Pharaoh owned all the land in Egypt, and so therefore, if you look at property rights, Pharaoh had the right to do with his property whatever he desired. And it was more akin to a feudal system where the citizenry had rights to use the land under certain conditions. It was not theirs completely. So um, even less than what we have today. Because today, yes, you can own land, so to say, but you still don't actually own the land. The United States government controls all the land within the United States. And so if you're doing something on your land that they disagree with, they can kick you off of your land. They can come onto their your land. They can arrest you. They can take things off your land. If you don't pay them their annual rent, their property taxes, then they can take your land away completely because you don't actually own it. Not in the sense of ownership as uh, we would say classically exists. So uh, that would be, I guess, the one main objection that someone might have Hopefully, I'm addressing all the potential objections here. I am truly trying to look at this objectively, because like the issue of Daniel getting Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego specific roles, um, that's a legitimate objection, or them being in government at all. Same with Joseph, legitimate objection. Uh, Joseph taking away people's stuff that they grew, a legitimate objection. There, there are plenty of legitimate objections to the perspective that I'm painting here, However, as I go through and I am addressing all of these, I, I think it becomes clear and a pattern starts to emerge that none of these are actually ones that support statism. On the contrary, they actually typically all line up with the theology of obedience that I am trying to elaborate on throughout the entirety of this season. So, I think the uh, next part to address would be Daniel's prophecy. There is a lot that gets into political aspects, and it gets much more complicated than that, and I will not go into all of that. However, there are aspects that are relevant to what I am covering here, so I will try to stick to that and keep it uh, more brief, much more brief than it could be. I am not getting into prophecy and that kind of thing. So, Daniel's prophecy coming from Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 through 45, is the first part I'll read. And this is where he is talking to the Pharaoh and telling him about a dream that the Pharaoh had. Your majesty had a vision of a statue, a large, very large, and extremely bright statue. It stood in front of you, and its appearance was terrifying. The head of the statue was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its trunk and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you watched, a stone separated itself without any human hand, struck the statue on its feet made of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. 
Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken into pieces, which became like the chaff on a threshing floor in summer. The wind blew them away without leaving a trace. But the stone which had struck the statue grew into a huge mountain that filled the whole earth. That is what you dreamt. And now we will give the king its interpretation. Your Majesty, King of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory, so that wherever people, wild animals, or birds in the air live, he has handed them over to you and enabled you to rule them all. You are the head of gold. But after you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to you, then a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule the entire world. The fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron. Iron can break anything into pieces, pulverize it, and crush it. So just as iron can crush anything, this kingdom will break the other kingdoms into pieces and crush them. Finally, you saw the feet and toes made partly of pottery clay and partly of iron. This will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the firmness of iron, since you saw the iron mixed with the clay from the ground. Just as the toes of the feet were part iron and part clay, this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. You saw the iron mixed with the clay, that means that they will cement their alliances by intermarriages, but they won't stick together any more than iron blends with clay." In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will establish a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will pass into the hands of another people. It will break to pieces and consume all those kingdoms, but it itself will stand forever, like the stone you saw, which without human hands separated itself from the mountain and broke to pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold." The great God has revealed to the king what will come about in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is reliable. Okay, then the next section to read is Daniel chapter 7, verses 23 through 27. And this is later on, but it's uh, yeah relevant, the other part of his prophecy that uh, fits in here. This is what he said, and he's talking about a vision that he had, and I believe it was an angel that was speaking to him and explaining certain aspects of a vision. This is what he said. The fourth animal will be a fourth kingdom on earth. It will be different from the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, trample it down, and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and yet another will rise after them. Now he will be different from the earlier ones, and he will put down three kings. He will speak words against the Most High and try to exhaust the Holy Ones of the Most High. He will attempt to alter the seasons and the law, and the Holy Ones will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. But when the court goes into session, he will be stripped of his rulership, which will be consumed and completely destroyed." Then the kingdom, the rulership, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the holy people of the Most High. Their kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will serve and obey them. So the final thing I want to read is a quote from David Lipscomb, who I've quoted many times from his book On Civil Government. Quote, The mission of the kingdom of God is to break into pieces and consume all these kingdoms, 
take their place, fill the whole earth, and stand forever. How could the individual citizens of the kingdom of God found, enter into, and become part and parcel of, upbuild, support, and defend that which God's kingdom was especially commissioned to destroy? End quote. So, uh, yeah, I'll just get into it. I will try to avoid the eschatological issues here and all the interpretation and prophecy and the application of prophecy and all of these things. That is not the point of what I'm doing. These are separate issues for separate books, for separate podcasts, for separate presentations. They are related and worth study, but addressing the broad political point is the most relevant aspect here about the theology of obedience. The prophecy given in Daniel clearly states that the nations of earth will fall to the kingdom of God. God's kingdom will be everlasting, and the kingdoms of man will all be destroyed. Not only this, but they will be destroyed by the kingdom of God and or by God himself, the rock that is separated without human hands. This does not necessarily mean through warfare, nor does it clarify which members of God's kingdom will play which roles in the destruction, whether by God or by angels or as human representatives by decree or revelation or battle by internal or external forces. The method will not change the fact that the kingdoms of man are in opposition to and will fall to the kingdom of God. And in the end, all nations, rulers, and citizens will bow to God and be under the jurisdiction of his kingdom, which will fill the entire earth. Now, I would, I guess my personal opinion would be that since the rock is separated without human hands, and it is the thing that destroys the statue, all of the kingdoms of man, that is a God thing. That's not a human thing, specifically not by human hands. And it's the rock itself. And the rock itself grows into the mountain that fills the whole earth. So I would lean in that direction. But again, that's not what this episode is about specifically. Now, um, another thing to mention is that as you go through all of the representations of what these kingdoms are, it could be argued that the final kingdom of clay and iron could be Rome, and that that is the kingdom that gets destroyed, and that kind of makes sense because Jesus came, Yeshua came, proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is near, and he later said the kingdom of heaven is here, and so he established that kingdom of heaven, and it says that that's when that kingdom will be established, so that does make sense. There's also the aspect of uh, a new Rome or a new Babylon, or that our modern system is an expansion of this Roman style of governance and everything else, and it's more of a conglomeration of various variations of Rome, which is kind of how it exists, that are connected through alliances, kind of like intermarriages, but without being uh, truly one, as iron does not mix with clay. There's also an aspect of clay being natural and iron being uh, a metal. And uh, some people go into the possibility of this uh, intermingling of technology and the natural world, even getting into consciousness and robotics and transferring consciousness. A lot of places you can go here. Uh, There are other places that do say 
there's buying and selling of souls uh, in the end times. And uh, think of consciousness, if you could transfer that, and that's what they're working on, or maybe already have, and you could uh, say that someone that saw something of this nature was revealed something of this nature, that would make sense to call that a soul. And so uh, there is a a lot you could get into here, and uh, I'm not going to get into any of it other than that. I am just... uh, the going to briefly mention a lot of the different things that are at least interesting to me in relation to these things and modern times. But there's a lot more, and it is way beyond me. So with this, let me read a few verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through to 25. For just as in connection with Adam all die, so in connection with the Messiah all will be made alive, but each in his own order. The Messiah is the firstfruits, then those who belong to the Messiah at the time of his coming, then the culmination when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father after having put an end to every rulership, yes, to every authority and power, for he has to rule until he puts all his enemies under his feet. So regardless of the eschatology used Yeshua makes clear that the kingdom of God is here in some form and to some degree, and we as Christians are part of it and representatives of this kingdom. It is also clear that in some way, to some degree, Satan is in charge of the kingdom of man currently on earth. And if you go through that time frame, that chronological layout from 1 Corinthians, the Messiah is the first fruits. Okay, so Yeshua has come then those who belong to the Messiah at the time of his coming. So that would be these uh, first disciples and everybody that followed Yeshua and believed in him. Uh, That would be that next group. Then the culmination, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after having put an end to every rulership, yes, to every authority and power. And uh, I guess that would be the debatable step, is, is that culmination when uh, he goes through the crucifixion and is with God at the right hand of God? Is that when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father and in a spiritual sense has put an end to every rulership and now everything is back in the hands of God? Uh, That would be one interpretation, probably a less common one and probably one I would lean against, actually. Uh, More what I would lean towards and probably what would be more common would be to say that this is uh, the end times. This is what happens at the very end of the end times. This is the true culmination. So we are currently in between those who belong to the Messiah at the time of his coming and the culmination when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. We are somewhere in between there where his kingdom has been established. It is here. We're a part of it. We are growing it. But it hasn't taken over the whole earth and destroyed everything else and put an end to every rulership. Uh, There is a sense that that has happened. There is a sense that death has been defeated. There is a sense that sin is no more in the sense that its um, impact on salvation, our relationship with God, no longer has that power, but sin still exists. Death still exists. These things are still in existence. The kingdom of man is still in existence. So it's one of those things where it's an already not yet situation, where in a sense, These things have happened at the crucifixion of the Messiah and his resurrection. Uh, A lot of this stuff was fulfilled in a sense, but it has not been fulfilled in its entirety. 
You can look at Sabbath the same way, where uh, we can now rest in Jesus. That is a phrase used in Scripture, and that is a principle that's spelled out multiple times, that as Yeshua comes, we can find rest in Him from um, uh, all of these labors that were being pursued by the Jews prior to the Messiah's coming. So, in a sense, Sabbath has been fulfilled. But the true fulfillment of Sabbath will be after the end times with a new heaven and a new earth and a truly perfect eternal Sabbath. And so that has not happened yet. It's already, but not yet. Now, to get into uh, this aspect of who uh, Yeshua and God the Father are fighting, because it specifically says that God fights these earthly kingdoms and destroys them, and uh, his kingdom, the eternal kingdom that we are a part of, will fill the entire earth. And so it's it, it seems interesting. It's, oh, is God against each individual kingdom? Well, no, the overall, well, yes, but the overall point is that God is against the adversary. That's why he's named the adversary, uh, because he's the adversary of God. And so uh, that is the key. Let me read a few verses specifically laying out how that applies. So in John chapter 12, verse 31, Now is the time for this world to be judged. Now the ruler of this world will be expelled. So specifically, there is a ruler of this world. And the world will be judged and the ruler will be expelled. That ruler is not God. God's not getting expelled by God. That's not what's happening here. The ruler is the adversary, specifically labeled the ruler of this world. Now, also in John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11, and uh, this will be, uh, this is talking about God. When he comes, he will show that the world is wrong about sin, about righteousness, and about judgment, about sin in that people don't put their trust in me, about righteousness in that I am going to the Father and you will no longer see me, about judgment in that the ruler of this world has been judged. So again, the ruler of this world. There is a ruler of this world. It exists. He exists. Whatever. Uh, the next part would be Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Finally, grow powerful in union with the Lord, in union with his mighty strength. Use all the armor and weaponry that God provides so that you will be able to stand against the deceptive tactics of the adversary. For we are not struggling against human beings, but against the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers governing this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So um, this specifically says that there is a spiritual war going on here. It's not just the kingdom of man as individual human beings. There is a ruler of this world labeled here as the adversary, and that's capitalized. It's a specific being. And we are not struggling just against these human beings, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers governing this darkness. So against the adversary and his bureaucracy, in a sense, that would be that could be taken in a spiritual sense and or a physical sense. Again, I am not going to interpret everything for you because I don't know everything. So you could either say that um, we are battling 
we are not struggling against human beings, but against the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers governing this darkness. So maybe that's uh, the systems, the uh, governments, the kingdom of man in that sense, not just the individual people, but about their their roles and their bureaucracies and their systems and all of these things, all of these broader aspects of the kingdom of man, not just an individual themselves, but the whole kingdom of man or the whole government or the whole whatever. Uh, that would be one interpretation. One would be that he is just uh, elaborating over and over and over again different aspects of the spiritual forces. So maybe the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers, the spirit are are what he says just after this, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. And that could be two. It could be one or the other or both. I don't know. But uh, the whole point that I am making here is that uh, the world is ran by the adversary. And he has rulers, authorities, cosmic powers. There is a spiritual force at work here that is running this world. In Luke eleven twenty three, it says, Those who are not with me are against me, and those who do not gather with me are scattering. So it is being clearly laid out that there are two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of God that is ruled by God, God that will eventually fill the whole earth and be an everlasting kingdom. Then, separate from this, totally separate, there is the kingdom of man, which will be destroyed by God in the end, which is counter to God's ways, which is ran by the adversary. That's just what the scripture says there, is that these are the two kingdoms, and you are either with God or against him. You're, you're one or the other. You're not a member of both kingdoms. You are, as a Christian, a member of the kingdom of God, playing the role of representative and ambassador to the kingdom of man. You are not a citizen of the kingdom of man that happens to have the Christian card in your back pocket that says, oh, I'm also a Christian, a member of this kingdom too. No, you are a Christian playing the role of ambassador, and an ambassador is not a citizen of two different places in in general. An ambassador is a citizen of one place, with loyalty to one place, coming from one place, and visiting another different kingdom that is not their own. That's what we're doing. That's why we're described as salt and light and everything else. We'll get there, too. So, not only would meshing with the kingdom of man and governments of the earth be siding with the enemy of God's kingdom in a broad and principled way, but it is it also means directly siding with the ruler of this world, the adversary. Uh, I, I, I don't think I really need to explain. That's probably not something a Christian wants to do uh, because you're either one or the other. You're with me or against me. As shown earlier, the establishment of the kingdoms of man was a rejection of God, as stated by God. That's how he defined it himself. We now see that the end of the kingdoms of man involve them being in juxtaposition to God as well. So in the beginning, it's a rejection of God. Whether you look at, say, Nimrod, or you look at uh, the Israeli monarchy, or whatever aspect you want to look at here, even Adam, but uh, in the beginning, that's a rejection of God every single time. God clearly lays that out. And in the end, it is clearly laid out, as I went over today, that in the end, the kingdoms of man are against God and he destroys them as his enemy. So in between these two time periods, there is a clear presentation of governments and states, kings and presidents, rulers and bureaucracies, voters and councils, 
all who make up the kingdom of man. And they go against God and establish themselves as corrupt kingdoms. This is scripturally laid out, historically laid out, and playing out in today's world. We are in this in-between times, and that's just the way it is. It's not that it magically changes in between. Uh, It's still against God. It's still the kingdom of man. It's still ruled by the adversary. They do not use God's word in its entirety. They do not live morally by God's standards. They do not lead as God says to lead. They're rebellious in their beginning, rebellious in between, and are ruled by the rebellious adversary and are rebellious at their end. It's a rebellion. If you, uh, if you ever listened to or read E. Michael Jones, he talks about the revolutionary spirit of the Jews, and he talks a lot about um, how they rejected the Messiah, and there's this aspect of revolution and rebellion, and then carries that forward through history and how that keeps coming up again and again and again and again. It's this same aspect here, where um, it's this aspect of rebellion, and it's always rebellion against God. It's man trying to fill that role of God, and it happened at the beginning, it happens at the end, it's happening in between, it's all over. So, though God is sovereign over all, he allows humanity the free will to rebel if it chooses. That's free will. Our role is both not to rebel and not to be involved with those who do both on an individual level, and I would argue, and am arguing, also on a political level, both as a citizen and as a Christian. Primarily, and above all, we are not to rebel against God, or be knit together with those who do. And you could say uh, knit together, you could say yoked together, uh, bound formally together, and you could argue what that means, but the point is, there is some level of connection with others that we are not to go beyond. We are to uh, be salt and light. We're to interact with others, eat with others, talk to them, be, uh, may work with them, these kinds of things. But it's recommended you don't marry them. It's recommended that you are not yoked together with them. And so uh, there is a limit here because we are part of two different kingdoms. So that would be what I would say is the primary thing. Don't rebel against God and don't be yoked together with those that do. Now, secondarily we are not to rebel against the authorities that God has allowed on earth or cast our lot with those who do, so long as this does not contradict the primary rule of not rebelling against God. And so the, this is something that Daniel said, that God has given you, Pharaoh, all of this land to rule over even the animals, all of the things. You are to be a steward of this land, and he has given that to you. The same thing is said to Nebuchadnezzar and lots of different rulers. That doesn't mean that these rulers are uh, following God. That doesn't mean they're godly. In fact, most of the time they are not. And I'll get into that, I guess, next episode when we'll talk about God's use of nations. But regardless of this, uh, God still says that they rule over these places and that we are to submit to them. And you go New Testament, uh, the situation is Rome, Roman government, very corrupt and not Christian at all whatsoever. In fact, uh, largely killing Christians and torturing them and everything else. So even then, we are told to submit, not to rebel. So again, primary, don't rebel against God or be yoked with those that do secondary, don't rebel against the authorities that God has allowed on earth, or cast our lot with those that do. Okay, that that makes perfect sense. Thirdly, we are not to be in rebellion against God's natural order and his creation as he established it, nor are we to support those who do. 
again. We are to be in unity with God and the things that he has created and the way he has created it to work. And uh, that is what we are to do. And I put that third. It's God. Um, You don't rebel against him or be with those that do. It's uh, the next step of obedience is to the governing authorities. He has put certain people, certain uh, governments, certain rulerships uh, in place, and we are not to rebel against those or be partnered with those that rebel. And then the other thing, the third thing is the way I am ranking it here, and I think this is biblical so far as I have been able to lay out, is that we don't go into rebellion against God's natural order. There is a natural order of how things operate, and uh, we are not to go against that, and we're not to go with those that do. And so let's say someone decides that we should just wipe out every single bee on the planet and replace them with tiny little drones. Is that something in line with God's natural order? Well, no. Should you go along with that? Well, no, you shouldn't. And so uh, the thing, you know, that's a random example that hopefully will never happen, but uh, that's what I am talking about here, that God designed things to work in a certain way. You shouldn't rebel against that. Let's uh, you know, get into uh, gender transition and these types of things as well. So we are to care for his creation, support the natural systems and the order that he established on earth, and rule over the environment with love and respect to God's order and law. Uh, that's what we are to do. So that's this third part. And uh, overall, in my view, uh, this is a bit of an overview of the theology of obedience. Uh, this is what we are to obey. And uh, yeah, let me read another verse here, James 4.4. 4. You unfaithful wives, don't you know that loving the world is hating God? Whoever chooses to be the world's friend makes himself God's enemy. Now, obviously, he is not saying that if you are friends with an unbeliever that you're God's enemy, because Yeshua himself came eating and drinking with sinners, and that's what he told his disciples to do as well. He befriended unbelievers over and over and over again, and we're called to do that. We're called to be representatives and be disciples and to disciple others. And so that is not what's being spoken of here. And if you read the context in James, the world is not just individual unbelievers. The world is what I've covered in this episode, the kingdom of God that's ruled by the adversary. You're not to love that. You're not to be a part of that. Uh, and and you're not to rebel against that. Uh, so that's a really tricky situation, but that's what we are told to do. We are told that we are part of God's kingdom. And Yeshua says elsewhere that his kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, he would have soldiers and there would be war and he, uh, yeah, would be leading that. But that's not what his kingdom is. Uh, his kingdom is not a kingdom of physical rebellion. Uh, his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And right now, and at least as of, uh, I guess, uh, pretty much all Christians would agree that at least as of the time of the Messiah, the world was under the control of the adversary, that God had given him dominion over this world. Just like he's given human kings uh, dominion over different places, like Joseph said for Pharaoh, like I mentioned Nebuchadnezzar and lots of others, um, he he does do that, and he allows people to rule. He puts people in power. He does these things. Again, that doesn't mean that they are good people or that this is a good system or good rulers. Uh, we'll get into that next week. But he does do that, and uh, the adversary is another example of that, where he allows the adversary 
to rule over the kingdom of man. And that's, uh, I guess, most would believe, although there are a few that would have ended that at the life and resurrection of the Messiah, most would say that we are still in this time period where the adversary rules the world, and yet God's kingdom is also established on the world apart from that and is starting to grow, and eventually it will fill um, fill the entire earth and destroy all the kingdom of man. And that would be end times, and that would be the culmination as... I read in First uh, Corinthians, I guess. And so that's, I guess, all I want to cover here. I, I think that overall, this has, we've almost covered everything. Yeah, because I guess the only other thing Old Testament-wise to cover will be the uh, God's use of nations. And so I'm going to do that next time and uh, go over different examples where uh, God specifically uses nations, and he says specific things about them, and uh, I want to make sure I address, again, that objection. There are lots of objections to the theology of obedience, the way that I am presenting it, and uh, again, they're legitimate objections. They just aren't valid when you really dig into them, and so, uh, but we need to address them in order to make sure of that because uh, that's the way you do things if you are doing things logically and rationally and critically and objectively. So that's what we are trying to do here. So uh, next time we'll be on God's use of nations and addressing that objection of, oh, well, God put them in power. Oh, well, God uses X, Y, Z. And so, oh, we need to vote this Christian into office so that God can use him to change the world, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Yeah, we'll address that and we'll get to that next time. And then after that, we will start to make the transition into uh, Matthew, I guess, into Yeshua and his teachings, getting into the Sermon on the Mount. We'll start with the temptations of Christ, and then I believe we'll get right into the Sermon on the Mount, and that will last us uh, virtually indefinitely. And so that's where we're going. That'll be more commentary style, and we'll look at this from another perspective. Uh I guess with that, I'm just going to end this episode here. I'll talk more about where we're going and what that next part of this season looks like in the next episode and kind of set that up next time. So thank you very much for being a listener of this show. I really appreciate you being here. I really appreciate those that support the show by giving me feedback, by leaving ratings and reviews by giving money to pay for the hosting and the various things that uh, need to be paid for, for having this podcast and getting it out there. Really appreciate that. If you are interested in being involved financially, you can look in the show notes or go to Patreon and look up the show, Our Foundations, and uh, you can do that there. There are a few perks for doing so if you're interested in those. If you're interested in supporting the show through ratings, reviews, you might have to go through a different app. Sometimes what you're listening to this on or even the website doesn't necessarily... uh, I guess the website does allow you to leave uh, something, maybe comments. I'm not really sure how that's set up. Um, But some uh, apps do not allow you to leave ratings or reviews and you have to go to something else. Uh, But again, that's another way that you can support the show. And I really appreciate those that take the time and the effort to do so. Uh, I guess with that, I'm just going to end here. We'll get back next time with God's use of nations and wrap up the Old Testament aspects and background of this theology of obedience. So until next time, I'm out. Peace. This has been our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>
Bye bye.